Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Hey, y'all. Good morning. Happy Super Bowl Sunday to all you Swifties out there. Um, Okay, my name's Crystal, and I am a Covenant community member here at The Well. I go to the Easton Park CG, and I help serve um, in a refugee community here in Austin. Today, we are going to be reading from Amos chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calneh and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. How are y'all? Good, good. Hey, it's good to be here. I love, 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 love this family. Um, Man, God's doing really cool things in the city. Uh, So many people in here living like heaven is for real because it is, all right? Um, and so just really excited. AV got me crying. I don't even know why. He was like, I love it, girl. Thank you for hosting. Thank you for loving the Lord. It helps me love the Lord. So um, God is good. And all the time. Now look to your neighbor and say, I'm just kidding. All right. Uh, let's jump in. Uh, we are sort of rounding third base in our Amos series, focusing on justice and mercy. And today we're talking about uh, poverty. And so we've been looking at some individual topics for the past couple of weeks. We'll be looking at individual topics for the next couple of weeks. Uh, next week, we're looking at politics. And by the end of the sermon, I'm going to tell you who I think you should vote for. <laughs> I'm kidding. There's like some nervous laughter I heard, like, <laughs> Kawhi Leonard, all right? Um, no, I'm telling you how I do think that the scriptures should influence your voting and uh, how I think that we can respond uh, properly as a lot of Christians have done very improperly uh, over the past few decades. And so we'll look at that. We looked at lament uh, last week. We looked at religious injustice two weeks ago. We'll have one more story after poverty and then celebration Sunday. Uh, but today we are looking at poverty. Uh, now, can I be real from the gate? Um, I actually really, really hate talking about poverty uh, because I grew up in it, uh, like entrenched in it. Uh, My mom made less than $20,000 with three boys throughout my whole upbringing, and we were a single-parent household. Uh, We were on government-assisted everything. Uh, Those of you who grew up in the trap, you may remember waiting in line to get your government cheese and your uh, powdered milk. 
uh, which what you would do is you would put water inside of this like carton and shake it up and then it turned into milk, right? It is uh, as gross as it sounds like. There was rats, drugs, you know, name the thing. And so it's actually hard for me to preach on this thinking about the negative impacts that poverty had on me and on my family. Uh, in fact, we were robbed seven times growing up, different things that I know a lot of people have not really experienced. Uh, I also know that painting that picture uh, has some of us thinking that I was just this poor, little, miserable boy, right? It's like, oh, poor baby Tori. It's like, no, quite the opposite. Uh, my mom actually loved me really, really well. And my guess is, is that I had a lot more joy in my hearts than a lot of rich kids had in their hearts and homes. I just had less comfort and protection because of our poverty, uh, it is complex. And so I know that it is hard uh, just to even be able to engage in this for some. It is hard for me. Uh, and so from the jump, even though it may feel like I'm kind of grooving in the midst of this sermon, I want you to know this is a vulnerable sermon for me. Uh, it's hard to uh, think about this in some ways, even as I was prepping this week, thinking through the, the, the nights where this really impacted my family was a lot. So I want to ask for grace up front. Uh, and I also want you to know that I saw firsthand why this is a major justice issue from God, why this matters so much to the heart of God. Uh, poverty is massive because poverty is deeply interlinked with almost all other justice issues. In fact, it's hard to be justice-oriented without running smack dab into the face of poverty. However, a very quick search of scriptures would also show you that there's some seemingly confusing messages about poverty because uh, where we were poor, but my mom loved me really well, I believe that my poverty is part of what ultimately drew me into the kingdom of God, so I bless God for it. And you see that throughout the scriptures. Scriptures would say it's one of the benefits of poverty, in fact. The scriptures would say, blessed are the poor. Why? Because they actually see the facade of this world more clearly. And so is poverty a really good thing, actually, not a bad thing. Yet the scripture also proclaims really clearly that poverty leads to injustice. So maybe it's a little bit bad. On the other end, you actually see God's consistent promise to bless people of God, particularly Israel, that they might end up being a blessing to others. In fact, the scriptures make it really clear that you and I are going to be rich in heaven, like rich, like walking on gold, sort of rich. Poverty is the opposite of both Eden and of heaven, where there is so clear abundance, and so money then can't really be that bad. At the same time, once again, you have messages like, blessed are the poor, for theirs are the kingdom, or woe to the rich, is what it says. It's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for impossible things like massive beans entering through the eye of a medical needle. Uh, so there's this complex issue in society around poverty and what we do with it and all the injustice that's around it. But the scripture seems to be giving fairly complex messages, maybe even confusing messages about it as well. And so we're going to try to tackle all of this today. Uh, how do we see the negative impacts on the poor and fight for justice there while also see the dangers of being rich, yet see the fact that God does bless his people in the scriptures, and at times you can receive that blessing, and at times it's for the blessing of others. What is the message of this passage? 
What's the message of the scriptures? How can we live in poverty well if that is our state? How can we exit it and bless others? Like there's so much around this. How do we balance all of this while also stopping the injustice of poverty? I think we can cover all of this because I don't actually think it's as complicated as it seems. Perhaps it's really complicated to fix, but I don't think it's complicated to understand. And so I wanna give us an understanding today. Y'all vibing so far? Great, let's dive in. So I wanna tackle the poverty side of things first and sit and camp out here for a while, see why this is so harmful. Notice in the text there, you have the woe that is at the beginning. This is the second woe in the book of Amos. Remember, that word woe is a curse sort of word, not a curse word like a four-letter word, but like a cursing, okay? Like, cursed are you. And so this is the second time we do this. What was the first curse in the scriptures? Well, it was about religious injustice, which we talked about two weeks ago. That is one of the biggest woes, the, the curses, one of the biggest problems, according to Amos, God's prophet. What is the other woe? What is the other thing that is so detrimental? Well, it is the rich person's treatment of those that are in poverty. Why? Is that really this bad that there are only two woes? One is about all the spiritual injustice and the other is this. Is it so bad that it deserves a spiritual curse? Yes, mainly because of the injustice that poverty actually brings. It's hard to be justice-oriented and fight for good without running smack dab into poverty, like I said a second ago. And so if you care for things like foster care and adoption, poverty is the number one reason why people end up getting abortions or why people end up giving up their child. If you care about education reform, those who are in systems of poverty have significantly higher dropout rates and less resources, which perpetuate these systems of poverty and ends them not being able to escape the trap. If you care about prison reform, it is well known that poverty is the leading link between uh, higher incarceration rates with those in America. In fact, just do really quick Google searches. Poverty is the number one reason for poor health in our country, for poor healthcare systems, poor educational systems, almost all family matters that are negative, that have negative influences like abuse or domestic violence or child abuse. All of those are directly interlinked with poverty. You look at things like inequality, poor people are very clearly shown to be treated significantly worse. They are given way less chances than those who are rich. And if they make a mistake, they are given way less grace than those who are rich as well, making it that much more impossible for them to step out of this. Mental health issues, so much is connected to the issue of poverty. So if we care about justice, we're going to run into this. And you can see why it's such a deep issue for Amos and why it's so connected to the heart of God. God is upset at all of Israel's abundance and their lack of generosity in the midst of their abundance. Why? Because God cares about human flourishing. If in your mind God only cares about the soul, then you have a very abdicated picture of God. God cares about human flourishing. And the lack of Israel's care about the poor is aiding to the injustice in the land, and God wants them to do something about it. What were the rich doing to the poor? Well, the book of Amos indicates some pretty awful things. They were selling the poor into slavery. 
They were doing unjust business practices to exploit the poor for their own gain. They were land grabbing, taking land from the poor in unjust ways. Yes, gentrification is what was happening in that culture. They weren't paying the poor fair wages. Uh, kind of sounds a lot like America today, right? Uh, in irony, though, the indictment here is not necessarily towards their transgression towards the poor, but towards their blindness of the poor. It's really interesting because it aids to all these hints at what they're doing. But the biggest section that talks about poverty here is not talking about the sins of commission that they were doing, even though those were bad, but it was the sins of omission that they were doing. They couldn't see the poor. They didn't really have a heart or a care. They were simply ignoring the plights of the poor while they lived in luxury, knowing how much bad comes from poverty because the history of Israel was that of an impoverished nation. So God delivered them from. Notice they were at ease in Zion. They felt secure. They considered themselves the first amongst the nations, even though it's really clear that they weren't. Really quick background, if you're unfamiliar with the outworkings of Israel, there was a lot of other nations before Israel. God called Abraham out of one of those nations, made him a great nation. He had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. That's when Israel began to start. There was a lot of other nations that were already around. And so they were so rich, is what this is saying, and they were so into themselves that they thought of themselves as like the first the best, the most important. They look down on poorer nations, like the way a lot of Americans think that our nation is God's blessing to this world, despite the fact that we often look more like the Israelites in Amos than like the church of the New Testament, right? Israel, they're living in this time of luxury, and therefore it's really easy to ignore the cries of the poor. America is living in a time of luxury, do you know what the poor are asking for? Can you hear them? Do you know what the desires are? You see, wealth and comfort can numb us to the reality of what's happening in the world around us. So we're no longer grieved over sin. In fact, we're no longer grieved at all because we try to use money to ease the grief, which is why a lot of y'all, when bad things happen, you're so shocked at grief as if we don't live in a broken world because you're trying to use your riches to do something that only Christ himself can do, right? Like grief is happening all around, but they're unable to see it. Let me paint a really important picture here. Israel was rich at this time, y'all, like rich. They were still feasting off of the riches of Solomon a few generations before them. Look at Amos chapter 3, verse 15. As they had these summer homes and they had these winter homes, only rich people have that. <laughs> that means that some of y'all are in the 0.01% of wealth in the world because most of the world doesn't even own one home, right? In fact, ivory, see that there? Ivory didn't even exist in Israel, literally meaning they had to import this luxurious thing and you couldn't just buy ivory on Amazon and the supply chain of Israel wasn't as good as the supply chain systems today, right? So go back to chapter six. Not only were they in ivory, they were literally laying on beds of ivory. They're sleeping on elephant tusks. The baby or Lil Wayne ain't even flossing like that, <laughs> right? 
Like they're eating lambs right from the flock is what it is saying. Cows right from the stall. Now this doesn't seem like much, but in a generation that only ate meat during festive times, the fact that they can just walk right into their flocks or their stalls and get them a nice little ribeye was showing their prosperity, y'all. In fact, verse seven there, that word uh, revelry uh, in the Hebrew is the word uh, marzia. It's actually translated as feasting in the NIV, parties in the NLT, NASB as sprawlers, banquets in the King James, amplified cultic reverie, CSV, good times, religious banquets. I could actually go on. Uh, so whenever you see a, a multitude of translations translating a word differently, it just means it's really hard to communicate the intention of the Hebrew word in one or two words in English. It's, it's really hard to capture the heart of it here. So a scholar, John McLaughlin, he wrote this about this word. He said this word was essentially an exclusive upper-class institution, something like a club for rich men, which organized banquets characterized by excessive consumption of alcohol. So a fraternity. So yes, if you are in a fraternity or were in one, you're likely rich and God is gonna send you into exile. No, I'm just kidding, okay. Uh, but think about what's being displayed here, right? And think about our own culture in a moment, right? And look at what it says here, really, really important. It says that the Lord hates this. God swears by himself. Y'all, God's yeses are yes and his noes are no. So when God begins to swear by himself, this is very serious. It is worth a woe at the start and it is worth a seriousness at the end of this message. And all of these riches, they were completely forgetting about the poor at best or oppressing them, using them to create their own luxury while the poor lived in poverty and suffering at worst. God saw what was this, this was being done to the poor. He saw all the systemic injustices this was setting up and God was hating this and he was threatening to do judgment because of this. If poverty is one of the leading causes for all these other injustice issues, no wonder why God is mad at this. They're oppressing the poor who are image bearers of God. And even where there's no oppression, there's forgetfulness and people are not walking in Christ's likeness within this because Christ does not Forget the poor, he blesses them. He sees them. In fact, he goes right to them intentionally and begins to minister to him. They are consuming, but they are not giving. And the Bible talks right against this. First John chapter three, you see it there on the screen, it says this in verse 17. It says, but if anyone has the world's goods, riches, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In James chapter 2, verse 14, the brother of Jesus gives a very similar idea. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Their lack of generosity is further evidence of what we've been saying throughout this series. Not only was their justice bad, but so too was their relationship with God. 
Because if your relationship with God is in right standing, then how can you not have compassion for other image bearers who are struggling? How can the, 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 the love of God, which you say is poured out into your hearts, how can that not begin to force its way through your hands? But money has a way of doing this, doesn't it? It has a way of pacifying us into forgetting about those in need. And so one response is really clear, that we have to care for the poor. Now, I know this is small. It's because I'm about to put a lot on the screen later, okay? So if you're sitting in the back, you can't see it, pull out your phone. You probably got a nice enough phone. You can zoom in later, all right? And you should have got to church on time anyway. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. All right, I know parking's crazy, all right? Um, listen, one of the four extremes in the scripture is that we should care about those in poverty. We should care and we should act. We should do something. Because to not care and to not act begins to lead towards oppression, which ultimately leads towards injustice. It is the suffering of image bearers of God. So if we're not moving towards a center when we see those hurting, we will be moving towards injustice. And I want you to know it is impossible for you to stay stagnant here because the stream of the world is moving towards injustice. So if you're not moving towards a right heart and action, then the river will naturally pull you towards injustice because Satan hates image bearers of God and wants to ruin everything in this world. And so if you're not gaining a heart for this family of God, you're gonna slide, you're gonna drift. You're gonna end up being one that actually creates injustice. Even if you're like, well, I'm not doing anything explicit. I know that's what's happening in this text. They're not doing anything explicit. They're just not doing anything positive either. We have to care. We have to care. So if poverty causes so much harm, then what is the answer if we have money? Because that is the state of most of us here on this earth in this room. What are the rich supposed to do? You're supposed to just give all of your money away? Is money wicked and evil in and of itself? Well, no, not necessarily. It's dangerous, but it's not evil. It's easy to love, which that's evil, and love will turn our hearts against God and against those in need. But notice, I wanna journey throughout the scripture some to give us a holistic past or thought. Let's start in this passage, uh, chapter, uh, verses, chapter six, verses four through six. I highlighted a couple of things that I was really intentional about highlighting. There's a lot of riches they have, but all of these things are actually things that God promised to give them if they obeyed God and if they loved him. These are all commands that God says, I will bless you if you obey me, all of them. So our rich is bad if God is sitting here blessing them with it. God promises to bless the Israelites. So money isn't what is bad. It is the way that we treat people with our money and the heart that we have towards people often because of our money that is bad. If money makes us forget to do justice to others or if it makes us trust in God, then that is where the problem is. And so for many of us, we may never have an affair with our spouses, but you may have an affair with your finances and end up cheating on God or on justice or on your spouse or on your children or on the church because money is that significant to you. Are you sure you're not drifting towards idolatry? Money is dangerous. And therefore, we need to recognize the extreme of riches and know what to do with it. 
The second extreme here is that there is danger in riches. And the way we move towards a sinner is that we have to be warned about riches. And you need to heed the warning in Scripture, church. You have to heed the warning in Scripture. As you move closer to either of these extremes, the more dangerous they become to your soul, but also the more dangerous to the soul of others. So what do you do then? Do you just give it all away? Since riches can be really dangerous, well, the Scripture has interesting things to say about money once again. I want to look at a couple and then apply this, since most of us would flirt and cheat on this extreme right here. Look at verse 6. It says that they anoint themselves with the finest oils, them fresh oils. They have them expensive essential oils in the day, All right? Well, this word here is a really particular Hebrew word, which in the Greek is actually used in the exact same place in John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, what you have here is Mary beginning to prepare Jesus for his burial. And at this moment, Mary is recognizing that Jesus is about to lay down his life. And it says this using the exact same word for oils here in chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. It says, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive oil, ointment, made from Pyrenard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, you know, the one that's going to betray him, he said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, used to keep a little bit for himself. Jesus said, hey, leave her alone so uh, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Is that a striking saying? You'll always have the poor. Um, so is Jesus saying, hey, so therefore don't worry about the poor or don't care about them? No, quite the opposite. Because literally Jesus was so regularly caring for the poor that look at what he says just one chapter later. They're now at the Lord's Supper and Satan has entered into Judas. And in verse 27, he says this to Judas. He says, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, hey, what you are going to do, go do it quickly. Now, one at the table uh, knew why he said this to him, but some thought, uh, maybe Judas, since he has the money bag, like Jesus is telling him to go buy what we need for the pe feast, or, or maybe Jesus is telling him that they should give something to the poor. What are we saying? We're saying that they so regularly gave to the poor that when Jesus said this cryptic saying, the disciples were like, oh, he must be given to the poor again. So clearly Jesus was having a pattern of regularly giving to the poor. So we can't be saying, no, don't care about the poor because this was the heart of Jesus. He was caring for the poor. So what is he saying here then when he talks about all of this nard and this ointment? What does this have to do with riches? Well, in Amos chapter six, they had all of this expensive oil, but they were using it on themselves. They were anointing themselves. However, Mary's thought was, what is the best way that I can honor God? And she thought of no greater way to honor God than preparing God for his burial. Jesus wasn't saying, don't care about the poor. He was saying, how can you use the funds that you have to best glorify God? How can you use the funds that you have to best honor Jesus? In fact, in this very story, Judas, like ancient Israel, is trying to use money for himself and ends up betraying Jesus just to get a little bit of coin. And Jesus is saying, no, that is the danger of riches, but how can you use riches to give it to God in whatever way you see fit? So what are we supposed to do? Give it all away? Pour it all at the feet of Jesus? 
Yes, but it also depends on how you're hearing me say that sentence. The way to protect your heart from becoming adulterous with money is to see everything that you own as a kingdom advancing opportunity. That's how you guard your heart. Do whatever seems best to glorify God, right? Uh, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 18. It says that for the rich in this present age, you should charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to, be, uh, to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous, ready to share. So the command here is not to give everything away, but to be rich in good deeds. We actually see this consistent theme throughout the scripture, that poverty, I'm sorry, that privilege and power, it's not bad, y'all, it's just really dangerous. The Bible consistently calls those with privilege to lay down their privilege for the sake of others, so riches are not bad, they're just dangerous. So what should we do? When we see all of this uh, power in riches, should we give it all away? No, we should be warned. But I also wanna say that sometimes the church and our zeal to honor the Lord are so afraid of power and of riches that we end up living in this poverty gospel mindset. We end up saying, no, 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 we can't have anything. To have anything is actually really bad. And so we start to flirt towards that extreme. But when you live in the poverty gospel, how can you help somebody like me escape injustice? How can you help somebody like me escape the systems of poverty that end up creating injustice in the world around us? So we can't then flirt over to the poverty gospel. In fact, I think about one story in particular, if you are familiar with this story, is the story of Boaz. Uh, Boaz in the scriptures was a very, very wealthy man. And Boaz had all this wealth, but what he did with his wealth was he started to create all of these jobs for many different people in the nation. Not only was he creating jobs for others, but he was also not harvesting his whole field to leave some of it so that the poor can come and glean and can get some for themselves as well. So Boaz didn't give all of his money away and become poor. The dude was still feasting. He was still enjoying his blessing. In fact, when Ruth came to him at night, he was enjoying his feasting so much that homie was low-key a little bit drunk. We had another sermon for another day, all right? But literally, he's enjoying the harvest that God has given him. And the Bible doesn't necessarily paint that as bad, but he also intentionally sought the benefit of others as well. He gave to the poor and needy. He was a righteous man because of it. And he got a wife out of it. So if you're single and got money, no, I'm just kidding, okay? But that's the theme throughout the scriptures. So third idea here, right? Is that, hey, listen, money can have an impact and actually you can use it both for your own enjoyment, but also for the blessing of others. Wealth isn't bad. Wealth can be really powerful, but oh my goodness, it is also really dangerous. So we have to keep that in balance. So dangerous that Jesus consistently warns against it. So if you're like, oh, Oh, I got money, but like, I'm good, right? Because I gave to a homeless person twice last year. Are you sure you're not like Israel? Finding deep intimacy with money instead of with God while neglecting your relationship with God or justice to those around you in your comfort. Listen, y'all, so many of us are like Israel chasing wealth, but that can only give us a small measure of comfort and of security. But pause for a second and reflect. Um, is this what you should be chasing? Comfort and security? Are you sure that you're not accidentally chasing curses? 
and wondering why your soul can't find the life that you're looking for? Are you sure that you're not chasing woes, perhaps to your own destruction? You see, money is a lot like cigarettes. They don't kill you right away. But the amount of people that I have seen slowly but surely over the years destroy their relationship with God because of their relationship with money, lung cancer is forming inside of you whether you feel it right away or not. Further, when you start to die, you often begin to pass off that cancerous uh, treatment to others as well, and you create injustice or a lack of care or a lack of intimacy with God. Listen, y'all, money is dangerous, so we have to keep it real, right? We are tempted with this because a lot of us are in that third circle. We've received money, and then we're like, yo, if I could just get that next sneaker drop, if I could just get that Apple Vision, right? (laughs) I saw some of y'all, right? Like if I could just get that house, man, if I could just get that house, but then we don't take those thoughts captive, you do know that none of that satisfies, right? Like it's why the suicide rate goes up the more money you have. Um, That backyard is not going to give you the peace the way the presence of Christ will. And if you are trading the presence of Christ to work a little bit harder, to get a little bit more money so that you can get that backyard, I'm telling you that you're going to destroy your soul, friends. It will not give what you want in the end. Money is not bad. It's just not what you're looking for. But it's so, so tempting. We're tempted to find wealth what we can only find in riches with Christ because wealth does give comfort, but it does not give eternal security. It does give pleasure, but it does not give you any purpose. It does give you happiness, but it does not give you any joy. Money does give, but it also takes, family. And we need to realize that riches can only give you material blessings, but they cannot give you spiritual or eternal ones. We gotta see the reality of this. Poverty, in irony, poverty will give you eternal blessings as well. You know why? Because you're more awake to the fleeting nature of this world and all of the pain that comes with it. And so what do we do then? Well, if we have money, you gotta watch out for idolatry. But why are we so drawn to money though? Well, I would argue it's because God designed you like that. And that's the fourth idea of this little circle here is that there is a promise of riches that is to come. Jesus is going to make you rich forever, forever. And perhaps the lack of blessing that you've experienced on this earth is his grace to, for you not to put your, rich, or your hope in riches that fade, y'all. Because for many of us, we've made ourselves so comfortable here on this world that earth now begins to look like our future home of heaven and we can't really tell the difference. So of course we're not longing for it, right? We need to see the reality of money. And listen, if you get so focused on the future of money, and if you get so focused on desiring to gain, then you slide into the prosperity gospel. The other extreme of this, you don't know why you're suffering. It's like the Bible tells you why. You're in the broken world and money will not give it to you. Why am I sharing all of this in a sermon about poverty? Because friends, If you can see how riches have tried to rockabye you into a sleep, just like it did with Israel, then you're more likely to not put your trust in riches and more likely to use them what they're intended for. For the blessing of you, sure, you can enjoy some things, but what about the blessing of others? What if it begins to hurt your relationship with God? Should you just give it all away? Yes. This is just simply money, a foreshadow of things to come. That's how you find balance. 
Because no matter what type of thing you buy on earth, the moth will rust or they'll eat it and the rust will destroy it. But there is a riches that is coming that is eternal and that's what your soul is longing for. And we see this balance in the richest person ever, don't we? You do know the richest person ever is Jesus. We just saying all glory, all power, all honor, all riches is what Revelation says. Everything be given unto you and he had it, y'all. But Jesus chased better riches. Peep the words in this text. Go back to Amos. That word exile, hands stretched out. They're eating of the lamb. Jesus, the richest being ever, would intentionally enter into utter poverty so that he can save you from this ghetto place called earth. This place is ghetto, y'all. I don't know what type of world you're living in, but it's broken, right? No matter how much money you have, earth is still ghetto and Christ is trying to paint a better picture for you. You see, Jesus would ultimately stretch out his hands there on that cross. Jesus would be exiled from the Father. That word exile is the same Hebrew word as the word naked. Jesus would become naked on the cross, which is the sign of utter poverty, so that you who are in poverty might receive blessing forever. Jesus chased a better riches. That word anoints there. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. That word wine is representation of Jesus's blood. That word ruin is what Jesus entered into. They're eating lambs right from the herd. And so many of us are so busy trying to eat the lambs from our herd that we're missing eating from the lamb of God, the better meal that will satisfy your soul in a way that riches never can, saints. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, you know it. Come on, come on, right? You know, you know the grace of God, y'all. Because what? Look it, for your sake, he became poor so that in him you might become rich. Jesus became poor to the greatest degree imaginable and we will be rich. And this is how you have to apply this first. Because if you take wealth, and you begin to fix all the material poverty of those around us while never pointing them to the spiritual reality, then we will give them earth, but we will rob them of heaven. But what if we point to the eternal? What if we recognize that our wealth is meant to point people to the eternal God and we can use these riches rightly? Then if we're poor, we're not tempted to put our hope in this ghetto place, y'all. We can realize that something better is coming and we can put our hope in this because Christ does not defer hope. But if you have received true riches, which is found in Christ, then the material ones don't matter whether you have poverty or riches because you learn not to put your hope in them, right? However, on earth as it is in heaven, in heaven, there will be no poverty. So guess what you and I get to start working on now? Heaven on earth. And we can begin to bless people around us. This is all put together how you find balance. This is how you have a kingdom mindset. This is how you don't drift to the extremes over here, is you look at it like this. And so as you're thinking about this, I want us to think about literal application for us. What do we do? First of all, if you are in poverty, realize the whackness of this world, y'all. I'm telling you that after getting robbed over and over and over again at times just for my PlayStation, it's like, yo, did that really satisfy? Now that I'm in Christ, I can tell you that wealth meant nothing. In irony, my senior year of high school, my dad came into a lot of money, and yet there was not as much happiness because all of a sudden we started to buy happiness rather than just receive it as a family unit. It's really interesting. 
right? Have a kingdom mindset. Recognize what your soul is truly looking for. And by the way, if you're broke, don't think that riches is gonna satisfy it because if that's your thought, even if you get riches, you'll immediately slide to idolatry and you'll miss what your soul is actually looking for. Don't be tempted to think that having a backyard will satisfy you. It won't, y'all. It's good. If you got it, praise God. That's not a bad thing. Let your kids play around in it. Yes and amen, okay? I'm not rejecting that. I'm just saying there's more to it than that. From there, how can we begin to exit the systems of poverty? How can we begin to help those around us? We have a Money Wise class that's coming up in March. If you're awful with finances, if you've never been taught it the way that I was not, go sign up for that class, take it. If you've already taken it, teach others how to do that. It's really interesting. The church is the one that taught me how to steward my finances and literally taught me how to uh, make investments and get out of this and begin to help my family. Like it was the church that began to do that. And I love that. And yet they also taught me not to put my hope in riches. So do that as well. For those of you who are rich, how can you start to slowly but surely bless others? I think about some people on our staff team who's like adopted family members and try to help individual families escape systems of poverty. Like that is a good idea. Or friends, some of y'all are geniuses. To give away all of your money may be literally the worst thing that you can do with your finances. Because perhaps for you, you can use your finances and start businesses. And with your businesses, you can hire some dope people that will help you expand business, yes and amen. But you can also hire those who maybe are in systems of poverty. And you can teach them things like the Money Wise class, but you can also teach them not to put their hope in riches so that they can have a better and a truer hope. Like there's things that you can do, saints. I think about the testimony of many in our team. Even during exegesis this week, I was looking around the table and I realized that about half of our people had exited pretty good paying corporate jobs and entered into full-time ministry. And the testimony around the table was, I have so much more joy than I ever had in that job. And that was a testimony like, man, I, I love Jesus more and I'm literally more, like I am more satisfied. Now I'm not telling y'all to run into ministry. That's a call that they answered, all right? Ministry has its own issues in and of itself. But I am saying, what if Jesus is telling you to give up things? What would it look like to actually believe, to advance the kingdom, to seek the kingdom is the better reward, y'all? What do you do when you find someone that is unhoused or unsheltered on the street? Well, listen, Yusuf gave a great example last week. The Weber East, CG, they go around, they, they literally make sandwiches, give it to them and begin to honor them. But I think about even other examples as well. Uh, Community First Village, they have a great example. They say, hey, what if the best thing you can give somebody is not money? What if the best thing you can give them is their humanity? What if it's just asking what their name is and then saying it over them since their name probably doesn't get spoken over them the way yours gets spoken over you? What if we would see them the way that Christ would? And what if the gift of dignity is better than the gift of $2 that day? Think about Alan Graham who started Mobile Loaves and Fishes, has a great example of how to break systems in poverty in a book called Welcome Home. It's a good book. Tim Keller has a book called Generous Justice, if you're interested in that. When Helping Hurts is a really good book too, because some of us think if we have money, just throw it at people as if that would help, but we gotta be smart about this, y'all. And so there's all sorts of ways. But as I mentioned earlier, poverty is directly tied to injustice. And so what if you began to see the ways that God has stirred your heart of justice to begin to break systems of poverty? You care about foster care and adoption? You're right in that world, y'all, break it. You care about education reform. You're in that world, break it, y'all. We just have to realize the warning that money is deceitful, y'all. It's really deceitful and it's not gonna satisfy, but there is a future that is coming where you will be rich forever, where there will be no more poverty, 
where there'll be no more injustice because you will have the riches of Christ himself before you. And do you know what you will care about less when you're in heaven? You won't care about it all. The fact that you're walking on gold, the fact there's mansions all around, the fact that there, because you'll be looking at the savior face to face and there is no greater reward than that. Realize that, live in that, and let us be a balanced people for the sake of our King Jesus. Amen. Amen. I love you guys like crazy. Man, thank you for journeying with us today. Love y'all. Yeah. Jesus, help us to have balance as a church that we wouldn't fall into the temptation of any of the extremes. It wouldn't all of a sudden be a poverty gospel church and therefore not help our brothers and sisters in need. It wouldn't be a prosperity gospel church and just live as if material can do something for us, that we wouldn't slide into idolatry or would not slide into injustice. I pray that you would teach us to be kingdom mindset, balanced, centered. God, I think about the blessing of the youthfulness of our church. If we can get this today, What type of transformation can we make in the world around us that for the next several decades, we could be thinking about how to create all this justice. I pray you would do that, Jesus. You would grant us wisdom and grace. God, I pray for those who maybe came in here. Friend, maybe you came in unsure of where you were in your relationship with God. I want you to know you can handle money great all day. You can have all these other things, but I'm telling you, there's a peace that surpasses understanding that wealth cannot give you, the right job cannot give you, the right relationship cannot give you, that only Christ himself can give you. And I wanna invite you, I wanna implore you today, place your faith in Jesus. Follow Jesus, begin to look to the face of Jesus, he will satisfy in the ways that nothing else can. And God, I pray for each of us, whether we grew up in poverty and now we're able to bless others, Jesus, whether we grew up in wealth, but we escaped the danger and the trap of it, whether we feel ourselves getting sucked into the black hole of American gospel that says the more you have, the happier you'll be, yet the more we have, the sadder we are. I pray that we would repent that we would ask you, Holy Spirit, how do you want me to handle my wealth? I pray we would handle it for the glory of your name. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. I pray you'd give us balance in your precious name. Amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.